Radio Entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, J- Jamie Prater, and I am joined tonight by my host... Patrick Green. There's two names yes, for you tonight, Jamie. Look at I, that. I, I accidentally almost messed up my own name. Yes. What did you What did you <laughs> almost say? No, I was just... I just said my name twice. <laughs> Jamie, just, Jamie. J- J- Jamie. <laughs> How you doing, man? Tonight... I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, it's it's getting a little bit. There's a little bit of a chill in the air, which is really nice out here in New England. We're getting a little bit of the tinge to the it's leaves cool in and here stuff. Too. Yeah, nice. It's yeah. been hot lately. It's getting I know. down to the fifties. Is night, it really? Sixties and fifties. It's still getting a little warm during the day, but the the weather here has definitely made it a little bit of. Wow, cold, I'm surprised. So yeah, I'm so excited because it's been hot as hell. And, yeah, I know. Here. Yeah, in more ways than one. So tonight we are here to discuss. Uh, this will be probably a two-part episode. We are here to discuss the com- conceptual design of Blade Runner 2049 based off the book by Tanya Lehane called... Uh, Tanya LaPointe. I don't know who Tanya Lehane is, but... Oh my God, did I say Lehane? <laughs> yes. I am all fucking over the place tonight, Tanya Lehane. Who is, is that some- Lehane? Is that somebody? It sounds like a fucking porn star or something. We're here to discuss the book by Tanya LaPointe, Blade Runner 2049. I can't even remember what <laughs> the fucking about. movie that the show is about <laughs> is Blade Runner Blade 2049. Runner interlinked the art. Uh, I'll, uh, I'm getting old. <laughs> no, I'm just, I had a very busy day. I have a lot of work uh, that I've been doing, so my head is like, and I've, I'm only operating probably on four hours of sleep or less. So, But I'm ready for this episode tonight. And this has been a long time coming. We've been talking about this for a while. We know that the book was coming out. It released a few weeks back. We all were able to get it. I think the book is fascinating. It's mostly images. It is There is some reading that you can do, some captions and some discussion about uh, the look of the film. So that is why we're here tonight. You know, something that I, th- I think is just becoming really apparent to a lot of us is how lucky we are that in addition to Denis Villeneuve being this incredible filmmaker, his wife is an artist in her own right. And the type of artist she is specifically is a writer. And the type of writer she is is somebody who loves to hang out on movie sets and write incredibly in-depth materials about the, the process of making films. And so... I mean, it's also great for Denis, too, because that means that they get to, you know, live together on the set and work together, which is, I'm sure, a really wonderful pursuit. Um, And then also, when the movie is done, as is now happening, as we were talking about before we started recording with Dune as well, we have all of these materials that Tanya is working on during these shoots with Denis. 
Uh, and so we had the art and soul of Blade Runner that came out in 2017, shortly after the movie came out, which was, I mean, we we, we, we were going to carry that, you know, Jamie had mentioned that this will probably be a two-parter. I think the second part of this will probably be based on that book. Um, that book is absolutely crazy. That is something that I remember kind of being on the fence about because it was a little bit expensive when it released. Um, so I was like, oh, I'll kind of wait, you know, I'll wait until like Christmas and, you know, ask. No, it's like $5. I'm kidding. It's not, it's still pr- pretty expensive or like 40. It's gone down. I mean, for, for what you get, it's, it's crazy. But anyway, so I, I was thinking, you know, I'll wait, I'll wait a little while to see the price drops. And then I was in a Barnes and Noble, you know, back when you could like go into stores and not feel like you're in some sort of apocalyptic environment, you know, and, uh, and it was sitting out on the shelf and I was like, oh, I'm buying this now and I'm going to buy multiple copies of it for people like, you know, that I'm friends with because like, it's just fucking incredibly good. Uh, it's a huge book, very, very well produced. It's you know, it's bound beautifully, full color illustrations, <clears throat> and it goes into the production design. So for so I was very happy with that being the definitive behind the scenes resource for 2049 because it's way better than basically any other you know book. And you and I both we have we have hundreds of if not dozens if not hundreds of books on film production design, you know, photo books and things. This was like the best one I've ever seen. So I was very happy with that. And then just. What felt like a few months ago, might have been longer than that at this point, we found out that there was another book coming that Miss LaPointe was writing uh, on the same film, and it's called, uh, as you said, the uh, the art, it's interlinked to the art of Blade Runner, sorry, interlinked to the, cons- interlinked to the art, well, neither of us can talk tonight. Someone else. By <laughs> <laughs> Tanya... Villanueva. <laughs> see, the problem is these books are so freaking big. It took me that much time to actually turn the book over uh, to see the cover again. Yeah, it's called Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Interlinked the art, and um, and again, I I thought the art and soul of Blade Runner showed us everything we were going to see for it. But lo and behold, there are hundreds of pages in this new hardcover, beautiful, large coffee table book, full color. You know, with full bleeds and everything that go out to the margins of the page, showing if I mean probably. Th- probably five, 600 different pieces of beautifully realized and rendered conceptual art. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, there are some interjections of, of, of text. You hear from people like Sam Hudecki, you hear from people like Kamen Anev, all these artists and designers who worked on the film. Um, but what's so cool about this, and what I love about conceptual art in, in particular, is that we get, this, we get this chance to see the movie before the movie existed. We get to see what the movie was like before anybody built anything, before anybody had signed dotted, dotted lines on you know studio lots or anything. Um, we get to see what the purest early version of this thing was. And uh, like all great conceptual art, like the conceptual art of Sid Mead, which we've covered at you know, quite a great length, um, the world that existed for 2049 before 2049 existed is just as interesting as the world we got on screen and getting to see the evolution of these ideas from the very primordial first stages. I mean, some of the commentaries in here are mentioning, you know, like there's uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll find it as we're talking again, this book is huge. So it's hard to find stuff. Um, I like a number of the artists say things like, you know, when I found out that the project that I was going to be working on was related to Blade Runner I I was overwhelmed and I just couldn't believe what I was doing. And I sat out and I thought, what would like my dream Blade Runner universe look like? What would, and some of the artists said specifically that when, once they knew that, that Denis Villeneuve was the director of it, they were so excited that he and Deacons were teaming up again because of their work on prisoners and Sicario. And they, and they started just drawing these conceptual things out from the script that would look like what a Denis Villeneuve and Roger Deakins Blade Runner film would look like. And indeed, you can see in the conceptual art that they nailed it because a lot of it really translated into the final film. But um, yeah, it's just an extraordinary book. 
It really is. It's, uh, I was not expecting the book that I received. I saw it, I, of course, like everyone else. I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy the book. I didn't expect it to be the same size, if not a little bit bigger than the art and soul of Blade Runner 2049. So I was pleasantly surprised. It is a lot to uh, look through. It's a lot to comprehend. Um, there's a lot in there that I want to discuss. And maybe not even so much granularly. Granularly? Granny. Granny. Granny, granny Apple. <laughs> um, but it's sort of everything I, the approach that they took, um, how they pulled themselves back. Some of the commentary Denis had about why they pulled themselves back, uh, from a lot of the conceptual design that we see. And all of it is absolutely stunning. None of it is like, Oh yeah, all of it is amazing. And you can tell that the people involved in the conceptual design of this film were over the moon to be doing it and throwing 300% in it. And it's really great to see that passion jump off of you on the page and certainly the screen, because what we end up seeing in the final film is different than a lot of what we see here. You, you do see that some final iterations that did make it into the film, but there's a lot that didn't as well, whether it's from guns or spinners or um, locations. Um, so I, I'm anxious to talk about that. So uh, there's, I, I want to talk about the opening scene because I think that there's some really interesting stuff in here when they were mapping it out. But before I do, I want to talk about the spinner because the spinner, of course, is kind of the centerpiece of that opening moment after the eye, you know. Um, and this reading through the sections on this, the, the one of the earliest sections is this very long exploration of the spinner and all these different designs that were kind of rejected or that were too polished or too... Um, strange or too commercial, all of these just wonderful, wild takes on it. There's some that look like tuk-tuks in, you know, in, uh, in Asia. There are some that look like, uh, you know, like aircraft carriers. They're, they're just totally all over the place and so fascinating. Um, but what I was reminded of when I was reading this section was the conversation we had with Mark Mangini, which if, if, if people listening to this haven't heard that yet, you got to go back. This is, this is like two full years ago at this point. It was episode, it was episode 24 or something like that. But Mark Mangini, of course, was a supervising sound editor, Academy Award-winning um, sound editor on this film. And we sat down with him for just this really amazing interview where he was very open about all these different things. And one of the things he talked about in that interview was how uh, impossible to conceive it was initially of how to make a spinner uh, new again without making it, with, without screwing it up. Because like many things in the original film, the spinner has become an iconic part of popular culture. And when something becomes an iconic part of, of part of popular culture, of course it gets, you know, ripped and, and, uh, redone and spoofed and ripped off just everywhere. You know, whether you're talking about altered carbon or you're talking about it just in so many different places, flying cars now look in popular culture, like spinners basically, right? Like the police car spinners we see in the first film. So when they were designing what it would sound like, they were trying to think really far outside the box. And this was something that that Mark and Denis and, and Ben Walfish and others involved in the sound landscape for this film spent months laboring over. And of course, ultimately, they went with this great combination of Mark's wife's Honda with the seats taken out and a subwoofer in it combined with an aboriginal spinning instrument combined with a Mustang uh, down the road. So like, it's just this you know really, really fascinating sound template. And I got that same sense looking at the visual treatments they did conceptually getting to the point which, where they came to with those, those Peugeot spinners that we love from the film. Um, there's this real sense of the, there has been time that has passed between the first film and 2049, obviously, 
but society's progression has not been linear, right? It's not like they were, they were just, it's not like that time was very productive, right? So things aren't that advanced. And a lot of the art in this, and the spinners are a great window into that, are, it's showing you how the initial ideas for things were very futuristic and very polished and very uh, perfect looking. And Denis and Dennis Gassner and the designers working on this film did a lot of paring it back to get it dirtier and to get it older and to get it a little crappier looking. And then building it back to being like, okay, now that we've kind of seen these extremes, like what's a, what's a really viable product? And so Kay's spinner that we open the film with looks kind of inevitable, right? When you see it, you see immediately that it's a spinner. You immediately see that it's related to the ones in the first film. And you kind of forget when you see it that it's not the same as, like I remember the first time I watched the movie, thinking as I was watching it, like, oh, it's the spinner from the first film again. And I was like, oh, no, actually, it's not. It looks very different from it. But there's such a strong, you know, resemblance to it in its genes that it really feels appropriate, I think. Um, so anyway, this is a very long way of saying when the film opens, um, they deliberately opened the first after the eyeball shot on a farm, right? Which is about as far removed from anything in 2019 as you can get, right? I mean, talk about like, you know, a different aesthetic. It is, it is really bright light. It's white. Like the farms in this field in Spain that they were using were like, I mean, literally like the color of chrome, right? It was shiny. It was very, very bright. Um, it's quiet. There are no people anywhere. I mean, if there are people there in bunkers, you can't even see them. Um, and it's an, under an open sky and you can almost see the curvature of the earth. It's just this incredibly wide shot. And, uh, and so the production designers who were, you know, or the conceptual artists who were working on this talked quite a bit about how they, in conversations with Denis and Deakins and others and Dennis Gassner, decided early on that they needed to start the film with something that would starkly say to the audience, this is not the old movie. We will take you back there and you will see echoes of that, but we are not going to be pretending to do something that's a facsimile of the original film. And that, to me, is such a window into what a great filmmaker Denis Villeneuve is. Because, and I, I, I'm not, I don't want to speak for you because I, you're a very talented filmmaker in your own right and your scripts are very different, you know. But, but I think I, had I not known of 2049, but for some stupid reason had been asked to direct a, 20, a Blade Runner movie, would have probably opened with a street scene at night. I would have been like, oh, it needs to have that aesthetic. Um, and I love how from the very beginning of this movie, and you can see it all throughout the conceptual art, they didn't even try to start with the same aesthetic. They worked their way back to it. And I think that's so cool. Well, I do think that they did start with the same aesthetic. Some of those first uh, drawings or paintings or digital drawings or whatever that you see are like, whether it's the Tyrell building or some of the locations or some of the streets, like uh, one of the early conceptual designs of K walking home looks like a street in downtown Los Angeles. But what we saw, it doesn't look like any street in Los Angeles. So they pulled it back from it looking familiar, which I think was very interesting. But I also think it was a it could have been a lose-lose situation because it could have been familiar, but not familiar enough. So it could have been identifiably LA, but not the LA that Ridley Scott created. So Denis had to, and Dennis Gassner and everyone involved had to come up with an LA that was their LA. That was what they imagined LA to look like in the future, not what Ridley Scott imagined. So some of those early drawings looked very familiar, very authentically Ridley Scott's world. And I think, well, obviously they pulled way back from that and said, okay, let's, let's go 
cleaner, not cleaner, but let's, let's go simpler than that. Let's fog or snow or whatever, less, like there was less, 2049, certainly based off the conceptual designs, but even the film that we end up seeing, it's, it's feels bigger. The world feels bigger, but it feels desolate at the same time. Whereas with 2019, everything is claustrophobic. There's stuff piled up everywhere in the streets. There's tons of people in the streets. In 2049, you don't see that at all. You see a few people here and there. In the food court scene, you see um, people there for sure, but it doesn't feel suffocating. People feel like they have room to breathe. Whereas in the original film, you did not get that sense. Even when uh, the scene where... um, Deckard is shooting or ends up killing Leon and you see Rachel on the other side of the street. There are tons of people on that street with her. It is a busy metropolitan area. No matter that it's depressed or dystopian, it is completely full and humming and busy. It reminds me a little bit of Grand Central Station uh, where we had lunch a few times last year, whether you came and visited and then for our for our um, event. Um, But that's not the world they conceptualized in 2049. Initially they did, but then smartly they're like, no, we can't make it that familiar. And I think it, it was such the right move to say, we can't make people that comfortable. We can't, we can't give people the comfort food. This isn't about comfort food. This is about telling the right story. And they did over and over and over. And to your point on the spinner, there's a couple of, there's a lot of spinners that are there, as you were talking about, a lot of concept designs of spinners, some that they pushed way far, where there's sort of a similar architecture, but it's definitely not, you can't really recognize it. And then they bring it back to make it look more identifiable. And there's one piece in there, um, I don't have the book in front of me and it's too big, I don't want to pick it up, but... Um, but you can see posters of this where it's really, it's like one of the coolest, it's very similar to Case Spinner. I think it was an earlier design, but it's way more, a little bit more futuristic. So there's a lot of detail on the outside, but they pulled it back from that too. And they made it cleaner and simpler. And what's interesting about the spinner is when the film opens, you see it's a spinner and your confusion that you had was because they didn't draw attention to it. That's why you were confused. They did it. The right way. And if you think of like cop cars today or cop, cop cars don't call attention to it. I mean, you know, there's a cop car, but what do you know of it being a cop car? You know it by the stripes. You don't know it by the architecture. You think red and white or red and blue or whatever. And that's a cop car. It doesn't matter what it looks like. And for K Spinner, that was really the case. You just knew, you knew what it was and it wasn't. And I'm so used to K Spinner. I almost can't place it it almost seems like, oh, was it Deckard Spinner? Oh, no, no, it's a different model. That's how well they designed that. That's how perfectly they got it, that sweet spot between something a little bit more um, advanced, but not too advanced. That's a hard thing to do. It really is, especially in a future where we see science fiction films, or I mean, even as we've talked about Raised by Wolves, I've had some issue with the cloaks and the the night the armor and all that stuff, where it, it's hard to conceptualize and make it believable. They just did it. It's, it, it's, it's a miracle what they came up with. Yeah, and, and I think, I think that, this, this, that spinner push and pull thing is, is really a key to understanding the way that they were building this out before it was in the production stages because a lot of it was this push and pull 
between legacy and future looking and between comfort and between discomfort, like you were saying. Um, and it's a, you, you were right. Some of the earliest conceptual art does show Los Angeles cityscapes, just like in 2019. Like, so George Hull, for example, who is one of my favorite artists in this book, um, and I think is one of the ones who understands Blade Runner the most, because he just says a lot of things in his little commentaries that really show me that he's, you know, a lifelong fan of it. His first sketches were uh, were really, like, rip-offs of that landscape. Like, there's a blimp, there's, you know, just completely believable things. And then you look at what he was doing within, you know, uh, a lot of, I, I guess there's not really dates on a lot of this stuff, but you look at what he was doing a little bit later in the production, and he is a, a big part of the reason why, you know, the Wallace Corp headquarters looks the way it does, because he was the one who was working with Deacons to get this sort of amber lighting coming through and all of these things that were very far removed from the original film, which I think is so interesting. So you look at people like that, you look at George Hull's earliest stuff, but then you look at artwork by people like Victor Martinez. So his first, and I think this is actually because he calls it his first step, I think his first attempt at coming up with Los Angeles looks so different and so much closer to the world of 2049 where it's very hazy. Um, again, there's really no purple or neons in it. It's really just this sort of like burnt orange look. Um, and it's very high above the action. You're, you're, you know, he drew the Walls Corp headquarters, an early version of it that doesn't look like the way it actually ended up. And then a spinner, a police spinner flying over it or flying near it. Um, and it's just this very kind of dreamlike soft focus thing that looks a lot more like 2049 to me. And then you look at other things from the, some of the early, I'm going through some of the kind of like the earliest stuff from, from different designers. Another one that I think is so interesting, um, was also by Victor Martinez. Um, and, uh, and Emmanuel Shu did another take on it too, which was this deleted thing called urban snow trash, um, which is like such an incredible image. So they looked for um, places in our actual world that are experiencing environmental you know, phenomena similar to the, what was going on in 2049, which of course, actually, you know, I, I want to pause for a second and just call out that like, since this movie came out, even the, the look of 2049 has been brought up over and over and over again, especially because of the wildfires that have been plaguing the West Coast. And, and this has been a really weird moment where this movie that we talk about that like doesn't get talked about that much by other people has been like front and center in like a trending news story on Twitter and things. And the look of this movie has been everywhere. So I just want to kind of call that out because I think it's so fascinating. Um, but anyway, going back for a second, um, the an another real world thing was uh, was the these designers looked in some places in China, like in Fuyang, where there is uh, like tons of smog and smoke and soot, but there are people outside practicing Tai Chi and, and doing, you know, physical activities out there. And so they're thinking like, what if this smog, you know, was so bad that it was causing this, you know, horrible snow to be falling, basically. It was just so thick that it was just settling in and everything. There were still going to be people who want to do Tai Chi outside, right? But to do that, they would have to have these crazy costumes on. And so one of my favorite pieces in this whole book is showing this, and it's a Victor Martinez piece, and it shows these, uh, like, Tai Chi practitioners out in what looks like a blizzard, but it's this, like, you know, radioactive snowfall um, with these bright lights so they can see where they're going, and mittens, and these full parkas, and goggles, and breathing apparatuses, and they're doing, um, like, like, clearly doing Tai Chi maneuvers out in the, uh, out in this, like, really just desolate, bright white landscape. So, again, this is another very early thing that was scrapped eventually, but it shows how, you know, you have that first treatment that I mentioned by uh, George Hull that was very literal for 2019. You have this other one by Victor Martinez, which is this, you know, amber kind of thing that we ended up with. And then you have that same guy, Victor Martinez, doing this snowfall, bright white outdoor morning scene. And those were all, 
and actually now that I think about it, that that aesthetic does come into play at the end. You know, of course that that's you know it's Stalin's. Anyway, my point being that there are a lot of really fascinating early examples in here of people pushing these aesthetics and pushing the lighting design in, in very, very interesting ways. And before I um, shut up about it, I want to r- remind people, because this is something that we've talked about before, but it's been a while, that before any production started, Denis and Deacons spent quite a lot of time together, just the two of them, for months, as as they were, as, as um, Denis was finishing Arrival, and as Deacons was available, um, they holed up in a, a hotel room, I think in Montreal, um, and they basically rented a space and they started talking about what the light of this film was going to look like. And they both decided, after weeks of iterating this and trying different things out, that it was going to have a very bright color palette and that it was a very, very, in terms of luminosity, it was very bright, but it was also very dull. So that it was basically like the sun shining very brightly behind a thick cloud cover. Um, and that look for the film is you can see the, all of the conceptual artists through this book playing with what that would look like. Because, of course, you know, they're not doing this in a silo. They're doing this talking with the production team and talking with Deacons and everybody. And um, Deacons and Denis are saying, you know, why don't you try this? Like, can you, can you have the can you and, and Deacons in particular is brought up all over this book because, of course, he had a lot of say in how the thing was lit. So when they're trying to come up with the Wallace headquarters, Deacons is saying, I really want, you know, the lights obscured behind a panel and I want it to be moving. And I want you to figure out how to do the, you know, the um, the reliquary scene in a way that would have moving light behind it. And then you have these conceptual artists fig- trying to like kind of struggling with like, what would it actually look like? And of course, to us now, this movie is so indelible. Like we know exactly what that looks like. But there was a time when like nobody knew what that would be. And I, I it's so cool seeing people wrestle with that. I love it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's overwhelming almost the amount of work that went into rebuilding this world that we were so familiar with and uh denis made mention in some interview he was doing about his crew and he was saying he had to constantly pull people back from wanting to recreate things that they've had seen before obviously in the original blade runner and this this pivot to well let's just do this because this was cool as opposed to well, well why don't we do something different and that is not any more evident than it is in this conceptual design book in interlinked. Uh, and even for instance, when you first see Deckard, Deckard, his costume is different. He's in this like parka raincoat. He's got this long white beard in the first page. This is the first page or the first couple pages of the book. And what do you see next to him as he enters mannequins, just like the mannequins in the Bradbury building. When he enters there, they recreated it again because that's, that's what people pivot to. They can't help themselves but recreate it. But they didn't do that. And um, and over and over and over, you see this. You see this happening again, where um, what was familiar has been recreated. And then again, pulling back one uh, point, George Hall, he the spinner. There's a couple pages devoted to his spinner. His spinner was the one that I was talking about. It was really sci-fi, obviously identifiable, but way cool just like 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 the just really cool and they pulled it back from that and they said no let's not make it that cool let's make it a little bit more affordable for whatever police unit is going to have to purchase these for their blade runner units or whoever to drive them so that was just again one it's one example of many of 
everyone involved in this film saying, no, let's keep going. Let's pull it back or let's push it forward. Um, I would love to get George Hall in particular on, on the show as part of the series. Cause, yeah, cause his art over and over again is stuff that I'm really drawn to as I'm reading this book. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's, it's cool. Uh, and even there's, you know, if you think about like Kay's apartment, there are nods to Deckard's apartment. There's a couple of tiles that look a little bit familiar. They're not completely recreated the tile from Deckard's apartment, but they're, they're there and you can see them. There's a general, there's a, 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 a familiarity with when Kay's in his kitchen and, um, him getting a drink like there's a familiarity there so you can tell like there's a homage being paid um from uh to deckard in his character in the way his character looks in the, the space that his character inhabits um but over and over like i think one one really interesting uh i want to get back to the location in in, in reference to the wallace corporation where you have k going in to meet well, he doesn't know he's going to meet love, but he's going to follow up a lead, which is Rachel's hair. And he meets the clerk and he's in that inc- incredible building. And just the design of the clerk's, whatever you call that, office space, but his the desk, desk area. Yeah. yeah. And um, I remember watching an interview or behind the scenes about that. And I don't know if it was Gosling. Someone was like, yeah, you know this was a really quick scene. He said, but then I got to, to set and they'd built up this really long panel and it was really beautiful. And he said, we, they, they built this incredible set piece for this scene, this moment that lasts less than a minute, I think. Um, and he said, it was kind of crazy. He was like, it was kind of strange, but they were pushing it away from anything that was familiar. And that was an incredible thing about Wallace's building and the interiors, I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen a science fiction that bold and beautiful and breathtaking and ominous and dark. Um, it was set up in some ways the way corporations love to present things. Oh, look, like the way love is talking to him. This is what we do. And look here. And then here's our product. And the light's moving like the, it's the sun. So everything feels a wash in the sun and all everything is on the up and up, which we know it isn't, but all of that was design choices, all of those designs. And they had to not just design it as designers. They had to design it as corporate designers. What would a corporation do when they design their own building? How would a corporation design a building in the future that felt welcoming to shareholders, to investors, to possible customers loves office when we first see her she's with a customer and they're talking about purchasing and it's beautiful and it's ethereal and you see that water all of those were design choices and it was a little bit interesting too they brought back uh tyrell's that that water um that water glow on the wall like you saw that everywhere and it was an interesting choice that they made like no we want to bring this back we want to use it i don't know why they did but it's beautiful and I don't even need, I don't need, I don't need to know the why I am curious why they did that. Um, but it, aesthetically it just works. So that's the level, like when people design things and obviously I'm not t- telling you, I'm telling our listeners when 
conceptual artists and directors and art directors come together to say, let's create a world. They're not just creating a world for the sake, oh, well, this is cool. They have to get into the mind of, well, what would a police station look like? How would that evolve? What kind of budgets would these police units have at this point? What kind of budgets are the local governments used to? They probably don't have a lot of money. So if they don't have a lot of money, where are they investing most of it? What's the most important piece of that. So the designers have to get into character almost to do this. So, and this book is full of that. And I think probably the, um, the challenge for Denis is this isn't about you making something cool. This is about you making something believable. And those are very two different things. And oftentimes things fail, which I would say altered carbon is to me aesthetically a failure, not because I'm thinking, Oh, it's just, because they made something that looked cool that didn't function. Um, and I know there's a big, huge community on cyberpunk and what that is, but, and Blade Runner is essentially the, almost the father of cyberpunk. Like the look that you see comes from the original Blade Runner, but it's not just a look. It's, and we've had this discussion before, cyberpunk is the consequence of natural disaster, the consequence of, well, in the case of Blade Runner 2049, a blackout, the consequence of e ecological collapse, economic collapse, people struggling to get by, so they're, they're, they're wearing weird things, they're augmenting their bodies, they're doing strange things. They need apparatuses to breathe because the air is unbreathable. It might look cool, but the function is not to be cool. The function is to survive, and that's why it's important, and that's how they have to approach all of this, and I think it is fascinating it is and I, I'm, I'm glad that you went there i, I want to get to the wallace headquarters in a moment um and i also want to touch back on something you were saying about uh well actually two things so one of them is in addition to the considerations of making it like believable and real and functional in that world um and also you know making it feel like aesthetically a part of the of the whole there's also like the consideration of like the script and, and what is is in there and how to translate that because a lot of the times you know like the script is very vague on some things and, and it's part of it's like just interpreting what the story is actually doing at this point in time and how you can contribute visually to the way that it's told. But then the other consideration, and the Walls Corp is a great example of this, and you know more about it than I do, is that they were making all of these things to be built, right? So in most cases, that desk at the Walls Corp entrance would have been 100% a green screen. There's like no chance that that would not have been digital. And you see that in, in all sorts of films, sometimes, you know, very well done and sometimes like shit, like the Star Wars prequels where there's no chance, like that would have been a green room where they would have walked into it and they would have just superimposed, you know, a, a graphic and it would have been fine, but it would have looked like, you know, the beginning of uh, Attack of the Clones or something. Um, what I love about the fact that these are all built environments is that it imposes a couple of restrict. If one thing, it imposes restriction, right? Because if you have to build something, it has to be able to stand up. And that's like a very simple thing that I think a lot of designers overlook in the age of CG where you can make whatever the hell you want because like it doesn't need to abide by any real physical principles, right? But in Blade Runner, everything that you see, I mean, really almost everything you see other than a lot of things kind of in the margins and a lot of things, you know, the detail that a lot of that is actually real and exists in a physical environment. And it's big, right? As you know, really well from your amazing stuff you did with Steven and the rest of the Weta team, like the, these miniatures were not miniature. They were freaking huge. These were the size of people, especially the Walls Corp headquarters, right? These bigger than people. Yeah. I mean, they had to get on ladders to work on this stuff. 
Yeah. And, uh, and which is just, it makes me emotional, honestly, because we don't see that very much anymore. And I'm so glad that we do in this movie. And, and it's, it's not just for verisimilitude. It's not just to make it a believable environment. It's also because it makes the design choices matter. It makes it specific. And as you see them going through this book, and Dennis Gassner has a quote in here, I can't find it right now, where he says, the first thing I tell my artists is it has to, you have to be able to build it. It has to be able to function. Um, you see artists struggling with that, right? They have these ideas in the script that are kind of impossible and they try, kind of render it and they come up with approaches to it. And then they reach a point where they're like, I don't think that this thing will stand up. Like, I don't think that this will actually work. And then they like, and then, and then they get rid of a couple of spandrels and they try it again. And they're like, ah, still, I don't think that this is going to support its own weight. And then they put some mullions on there and they're like, okay, maybe this would work. And then before you know it, you have something that looks in a lot of ways more conventional, but it looks more conventional only because it has to, to function as a building, right? So that you still have the fantastical aspect that kind of led to it by being this future script in a parallel universe, but it's a future script in a parallel universe seen through the eyes of a physical world that we can relate to. And I think that's just incredible. One other thing I wanted to mention from uh, something you brought up quite a while ago about um, when some of the designers are kind of like injecting things from the first film into this as kind of like little Easter eggs for people and then getting rid of it because it, it, it was kind of unnecessary. There's a shot in Las Vegas where you can clearly see a Kaiser figure or some sort of like a Kaiser, um, you know, model, like the, the, you know, the little guy in the first movie, which is very iconically Blade Runner because you see that and you see his little hat and the rosy cheeks and everything. And, you know, you think, oh my God, like, boy, this is clearly a callback to the first film. Uh, and in a, in a setting like Las Vegas, which I also want to make sure we touch on before the end of this episode, like that sticks out like a sore thumb because everything else about the way that they engineered that Las Vegas set is new and is different and is progressive. And then you have like this Kaiser statue, like as a comfort food for fans to be like, oh, I recognize that guy, you know, when um, we don't need that as fans. Like the story is our calling card. The story is the thing that we're relating to. The characters are the things that we're holding on to. Um, and we don't need to be coddled. And And I feel like that is a, uh, a huge mistake that a lot of filmmakers make that they feel like we need comfort food all the time, you know? Um, and I do think that there are some franchises like Star Wars, for example, where comfort food is not necessarily a bad thing. But I do think that in the world of Blade Runner, I, I think that comfort Girl, food... yes it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think in the world of Blade Runner, that is uh, almost anathema to the experience of these films. It, they are anti-comfort food. They are the comfort food you find when you've lost everything else and you're clinging on to some hope somewhere. And I'm really glad that they understood it. Um, I want to just move us along before we close out uh, to the Wallace Corp building for a second because I, it, I just think that's it's probably my favorite set for a number of reasons. But what I love about this is that it starts, the Wallace Corp section starts with a discussion of the uh, iterations of the logo design for Wallace, which is just as, as a graphic design nut, yeah, as, as I am, like that for me was just so fun to, to, to read through. And also like, I mean, you know, as, as you know, Micah has a tattoo of that logo on her bicep. So like, it, it's a real, like, this is like a part of our lives that we see all the time now. And it's so cool to see all of the different iterations that led to the point where it was actually really simple, which is just one long rectangle and two shorter rectangles, right? Which kind of feel like a W, they kind of look like the buildings, but you don't really know exactly why. And then you look at the, you trace 
the journey that that logo went on as a visual identity. And you start seeing like, oh, there was a time when it was a lot more literal, when it was just a W, you know? There was a time when the W looked like a bunch of buildings with lights on them. And then there was a time when the W became something more abstract. And then eventually they just simplified and simplified and did what the designers are doing throughout this whole entire thing where they're going to extremes. And they came up with something that was really iconic. And I, I mean, I love the Wallace logo. I love, I, and to me, that is exactly what it would look like. It would be sleek. It would be simple. It would be suggestive of, of various things. And it would play, I mean, that, that logo would look good for a thousand years. That's an evergreen visual identity. Um, and it plays out, of course, in the way that the building is designed. So in the Wallace Corp uh, early sketches in this book, there was a lot of this emphasis on making it into a W. And you see them like going through these really tortured exercises trying to get that to work out. Um, and what I love is that you, you, what we get out of that is all of these just incredible, huge scaled pieces of art showing what this like, impossibly large W would look like. And then you see them gradually saying, okay, actually, this feels kind of unnecessary. Let's get rid of this. Like, okay, what if we don't actually connect them together? What if there's a gap between the halls? Like, what if actually it's this three separate towers of different heights? And then you end up finally by the end of that section with like the iconic Wallace Court building, which like so many other things in this movie feels like how could it have ever looked any different? Like it's perfect. But you see that it didn't look perfect. It looked crazy for a long time. It looked too cool for a long time. And then they built something that looked well, real, you know? And not only that, what it was, was it's an inverted pyramid. It's the Tyrell building turned upside down like a W. It looks like the pyramid flipped over. They were still like, well, let's make a version of the pyramid. Let's do the pyramid. Let's do the pyramid. Let's turn it upside down. Makes it kind of looks like a W. And they were playing with that. They wanted that. They wanted to go back to, and even the way the Wallace Tower, when they're building it, it slopes in like the pyramid does like the pyramid in the original film the tyrell corporation has these layers and um some of those layers slope in on the sides on top of the pyramid and that's what the wallace tower looks like it's interesting actually uh side note the pyramid in the original stargate film that released in like 94 or 93 or whatever um was a homage to the tyrell corporation building um but you could tell that again they wanted to recreate the Tyrell building. They wanted to do it really, really, really bad. And they're like, no, you got to do something different. You got to do something, something different. And what they came up with was something almost frightening. Um, just those three towers in black um, that, you know, that go up into the clouds into nothing. You're not, you're not sure where they end or where they begin. It's just, and it, you're right. It's iconic and timeless like the rest of the film. It's amazing. I, I just love that design. And to me, that is just, it is exactly what it would look like. And it recalls the Tyrell building. It's also in the, in right next to it. Right. But there are visual things that make you that, that form of reference to the Tyrell building. Like you were talking about the water in the background. To me, the reason it's like that is because that is the way in this society, in this time you display wealth. Right. So like the trappings in the Tyrell building would be similar to the trappings in the Walls Corp headquarters. Because not only was he following in his footsteps, but he was also like at the very top of the 1% of everybody living in the world, right? Um, and one other quote I want to just um, bring up that, that stuck with me was when they were talking about the scale of it. Something that came up was they wanted it to be so large that it was hard to tell if the clouds were the ground or not. And I, that really, that just sums it up. It's just, it's an incalculable structure, but it actually exists as a miniature and it's engineered and architected to actually withstand 
its own weight. So it could theoretically be a building if, you know, you had an incredible team of engineers and basically an unlimited amount of money. You could theoretically scale it up to the size that it actually is, and it would potentially withstand wind shearing and load shifts and all that kind of stuff. It's just an incredible, incredible piece of design. Um, I also want to talk about Vegas, but before we go there, is there anything else you want to add? Not really. I mean, I think I, I do want to touch upon something that we've discussed in this show a little bit and many shows. There are, of course, people who have a problem with the aesthetics of Blade Runner. But one thing that was interesting to me, some of the criticism that I heard that the scene with Rachel 2.0 at the end was fan service and it was ridiculous, which I don't agree. I think it was just a plot point And I don't think necessarily bringing you know, characters back like that um, is always fan service. I think it was in service of the story, but it was just an interesting dichotomy in a film that doesn't do any fan service. Essentially. I mean, there's some callbacks here and there, but is an aesthetically different world um, with hints of the world that we're familiar with. Um, but then all of a sudden it became fan service when uh, Rachel walked out, which I thought was interesting, but uh, I don't really have a point for that. But I, I what I love is that, in terms of the world that they built, the world that they created, when we see Rachel 2.0 again, it's within the confines of the Wallace building. He, there, there, she walks up and into that space, but she doesn't look like she doesn't belong there. Aesthetically, she belong, She feels like she's just a part of that space. Even her costume, which is the same costume she wore in the original, it doesn't feel out of place. It feels normal. It feels like it belongs in that world. So it was a really even though there's some really bold choices made aesthetically in terms of art direction and what they came up with, it also really felt like it was just an extension of the world that we saw in 24 in 2019 just evolved slightly as things do. And I think that the reason why it doesn't play as fan service to me either, um, is that it's specifically it, it, so like I was mentioning before how Blade Runner is only comfort food for people who have like lost comfort right it, it, it's it's like comfort food at the end of the comfort food spectrum it's like it's like something to cling to i guess is what i'm getting to um rachel 2.0 is a scene that should play like comfort food it should play like fan service it should play like this thing that will mean a lot to people because it's from the first movie and she's one of the stars and she hasn't seen her yet um but it actually doesn't feel like that because the circumstances that it's presented within are not fan servicey they're not happy there's not it's not it's not a good moment right it's deliberately painful and i it, for deckard as well as the audience and especially i guess not especially because it's worse for deckard to be fair but especially for longtime fans of this franchise like us who you know have missed rachel all of these years and have missed their story and have wondered whatever happened to them um when she comes back we all feel our hearts kind of flutter for a second and we feel like oh my god this is this this could be a happy ending and then you see like that it's not actually her. You see from her reactions and from her facial expressions it's and things. Her. I know. Yeah, this is something we, <laughs> we we will always disagree on. I really don't think it looks like her that much. But but to be fair, I know you do, and a lot of people do. Yeah, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. Um. But but my point being that like as she as she I, I I think is it fair to say that at least she doesn't necessarily act like Rachel to you. Well, there is a. I would. To your point, I would say there is an unfamiliarity about her. There's something that is different. About right. There's her. something, something as she's talking. Yeah. Right, that you're kind of like, oh, something's different, right? Yeah, where she, right when you see her and you see her from the from the distance, you're like, oh my god, it's Rachel, and then she gets closer to her, like, 
I don't know if that's Rachel. Um, but I'll let you finish because I have a, a, a an anecdotal point to what you're saying. Well, it's it's just it's just it's enough that it gets our hopes up for a moment, and then we realize how the fallacy of that. Like we realize how ridiculous it was that we got our hopes up for this. Just like it was ridiculous for old Deckard to get his hopes up that somehow his love from his youth had been reincarnated and was walking toward. Like, but you see it in his eyes too. Like for a second, he thinks it's possible, and it's it's there's something specifically touching about that because I think. The room that she's in is familiar, but the rest of the of the rest of the experience of this film is very different and very far away and very lonely, and we're not seeing you know the world that we're comfortable with. So when we see a little pinprick of it like that, it feels almost like um like we're waking up for from a dream for a second, like that things turned out better for them and that like that that this hasn't actually happened to them, right? And then when when we find out that it did, and we find out that not only is it not only is this not a happy ending, but we are being actively manipulated as fans of Blade Runner, just like Deckard is being manipulated. Um, it's a, it's a it's a kind of a shattering moment, and and we've talked about this many times. I was tears were streaming down my face, and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe as soon as I saw her silhouette, like you know, because they show the scene yeah, of her from the first movie, and I and I was I will never forget I was that. crying during that. Yeah. And then yeah, I will never forget that moment for the rest of my life. She walks out, and and I I, oh. I stopped breathing, and I was just sitting there, and I remember grabbing Michael's hand. I still hand. stop breathing. Oh, me too. It's very every powerful. time I see that. Every very time powerful. I see that scene. Yeah. And I remember grabbing Micah's hand so hard, and I remember her hand going on top of mine because she knew that this was kind of hard for me, right? Uh, it was hard for her too, and and feeling like, oh my god, this is this is like this is this is incredible. Like she's actually in this movie. This is really happening, and then that sense of oh my god, it was a mirage. And not only was it mirage, it was a weaponized mirage. It was something used for pain. Uh, it was a really, really hard moment and a really powerful moment, and it was earned. And that's why it's not fan service, and that's why Blade Runner is art. You know, that's that's why. Anyway, what were you going to say? Well, I think interest. I think Rachel 2.0 acts as men, is she's a layered character because she acts not only as Deckard's possible long lost love. Um, and I've gone into, and I really would love a discussion about when we discuss AI and replicants eventually in the future, we're talking about some type of summit or whatever, where we talk about AI, um, whether or not Rachel 2.0 was actually the Rachel that he loved with her memories, everything. They had her bones. We don't know how they're made. All of her memories could have been in that bone, in their bones, in her DNA. That could have ostensibly have been Rachel that he killed. He did not know. Um, however, what I think is fascinating about her character and what she represents is the idea that we're looking for something familiar, but it's not, it isn't the same thing. And, um, and Deckard knew Deckard took the, the high road, which was terribly painful for him because you saw in his face, he would have settled for her. He would have said for okay, a moment, but yeah. he knew that it was a lie. Um, and I think as fans approaching a universe, a story like Blade Runner, we all are hoping to see those things that bring us peace, those things that bring us joy, those things that bring us comfort. And that Rachel was a representative of that. And then, but those things that bring us comfort don't always, won't always challenge us to grow. And I think it was working as, a question to the fans too, like this isn't Rachel is gone. She is gone. This is a different world. Um, and, uh, 
you while you will either accept it or not. Um, so that's the point that I wanted to make. Just uh, lastly, in terms of the interior of that space and the Wallace Corporation, what's interesting to me about that is it's all wood. We've discussed this before in other episodes, and the light looks like sunlight moving. It's beautiful. It's warm. The colors are warm. There's water, so it's peaceful. Has the zen, I the zen quality to it. But the reality is, it isn't. It's sinister. That darkness is sinister. When that camp, when that light is moving, and you see Deckard's face, and then you see Wallace's face, it is fucking sinister. And it's interesting that they use all of these Zen elements, sort of the elements of the earth, water, fire, and air, and light, to create something that was not peaceful. That was actually weaponized. That was actually. Uh, not representative of peace it was representative of power it was representative of control so i thought again hats off to the conceptual designers the art directors denis himself for creating something that we should have felt comfortable in but we didn't and it's and and it's just such a piece of art it's just it just it just really is um i i want to talk uh just briefly about vegas because because to me that that's my other favorite set in the whole thing and, and i just think it's just it just extraordinary um, and also because so much of the book is dedicated to it. Like a, I would say almost a third of the book concerns the development of the Las Vegas scenes, um, which is good because we ended up with something absolutely indelible and something that, as I mentioned you know, earlier, has entered the broader pop cultural landscape now in a real way because of the fires, especially the San Francisco orange skyline that we saw you know, last week, uh, which was just horrifying um, to, to behold and also weirdly beautiful, right? Um and the color palette of that scene is something that I, I will it will never get out of my head. That incredible orange that that is just like just iconic the second you see it, which of course was shot like that on a soundstage, and Deacons did all the color grading work on it, and it lit it properly, and it's just just amazing that that actually was a physical set that was actually lit like that. It just blows my mind too. But a lot of the work in the Vegas stuff specifically talks about the process of finding that color palette. A lot of the earlier sketches for it were very monotone. Well, I guess it still is monotone. It's just a, a vibrant monotone. But a lot of the early sketches are very kind of dusky. Or maybe monochromatic as opposed to monotone. Yeah, monochromatic. Right, right, yeah. A lot of the early stuff is very... That's a good point. The, the early stuff is very kind of like dusty, very gray, very tonally what you would kind of expect from a desert, right? And there's something about... like Have you, have you been to Las Vegas? I've driven by. I haven't been. Anywhere. I've never been to Las Vegas before, but I, I, I kind of like. I don't. I don't like particularly want Unlike to. Your mother. <laughs> yeah. You watch it, Prater. Um, uh, I, 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 I guess if if I do ever go, it would probably be out of curiosity just to see like how the hell it functions, right? When I when I was a kid, we actually almost moved to Phoenix, Arizona, which would have been horrible. Um, and so we were going out there a lot to like look at houses and for my dad to like investigate job opportunities and things. Uh, and I was, and every time we flew into Phoenix airport, I was like, how does this exist? Because it is in the middle of a vast desert. That's like 3000 degrees. And then there's just irrigation bringing water in from who fucking knows where to be able to power a city with millions of people in it. Right. And Vegas of course is just like that. It was something that 50 or I guess 70 years ago was nothing. It was a nuclear test site. It was a fucking. It was like a desert with a couple of houses in it, right? Um, and uh, and then it just became developed over the fifties and sixties in a huge way, and it 
blew into this, you know, uh, the like the birthplace of googie architecture and all of these different things that have become iconic. And, you know, it, it has never looked back since, but like it is a huge city that is just in the middle of just nothing. And literally there were still nuclear tests happening within viewing distance of the, the Paradise Strip in, in Vegas. Like you could see, you could see fucking mushroom clouds over it. It's crazy. Um, it is just nowhere. So there's something already I find really fascinating about the existence of places like that. Just the fact that the hubris of man can find this arid, completely unworkable spot in, in an enormous country and say, you know what, I'm going to put a lot of rich people here and let them do whatever they want, basically. So the development of Las Vegas in 2049, I feel like really is just doubling down on that legacy of just the hubris of this place, of this thing that shouldn't exist, that exists basically only for money, only for the sake of money and sex and 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 indulgence, right? Um, and you see, like, what would happen. So it, so it reminds me a lot, a lot of the artwork in here of Dubai, um, and I think that's intentional. And I think it's because Dubai, similarly, is, fuck, it's, I mean, if, if you, I, so I have a colleague and a friend who grew up in Dubai. She's older than I am. She's, I think, probably in her 50s now. When she was a kid, uh, Dubai was this, like, dusty little place that had like a couple shopping malls in it. You know, there was, it was, it was not like a, you know, there was barely any airports, you know, it was this, it was this little emirate. Right. And then now of course, Dubai is this like global mega center metropolis with all of the tallest buildings in the world, basically in it. Um, and it's just, and it's just an impossibility in the middle of the desert that has carved out, literally carved out its own coastline just to get more water into the city. It's crazy. So my point being that um, I, I think the architecture and the design decisions that went into Las Vegas really take that into account. They are, it is a place that looks like it just shouldn't be there and it looks grotesque and it looks really beautiful and fascinating at the same time um, in a way that makes you feel dirty, right? Because it's obviously objectifying women. It's obviously catering to our basest instincts, but it does so in a way that's just at the scale and this, you know, it's just it's just incredible. So I wanted to, to flag that. I also wanted to flag one of the uh, sketches in here that I think Sam Hudecki did uh, shows a woman pointing up at the sky. Um, uh, you know, a woman by, by woman, I mean an eighty foot sculpture of a woman, right? And uh, and that I, I don't remember that in the film. I don't know if it actually made its way into it, but there's it might have. There's a woman right at the entrance, to Las Vegas, who's kind of like you know leaning over obviously with her breasts exposed, you know, like it's very sexualized and she's pointing up. And Sam Hudecki says that the reason for that was that Vegas was also a spaceport so that rich people could lift off and go, you know, off, off world and poor people, or at least, you know, people who weren't able to get off world could dream about what it would be like. And I think that that sort of sums up what Vegas is for a lot of people. It's, it, it is for some people, some actually rich people, you know, it's a place where they can spend a, a lot of money and basically get away with whatever they want. But for most people who go to Las Vegas, it's a chance to like live this, this little glimpse into what it would look like if like the chains were taken off and you could do whatever you wanted and you had unlimited money and you could go blow money like that and get away with it. Right. Um, it's a fantasy for people. And I love how Sam Hudecki opens that fantasy, the entrance with a finger pointing up at the sky, because when you go there, like anything, anything is possible. And I, I just think, uh, I just think that that is just an incredible set. The sky's the limit. The sky's the limit, right? But it's actually, no, yeah. it isn't the limit because we've now transcended it, right? We've gone off world. True. So the sky, the sky is, uh, the, you thought the sky was the limit, but it's actually beyond that. It's just, it's just, I, I love what that says. I agree with all of those points. Uh, there's something about Las Vegas that Sid Mead designed that's terrifying at the same time. Like, it's also heartbreaking. Like, you're when the camera is going through it, but the camera is the drone essentially. 
it feels like heartbreak. It feels like this is the remnants of man, the remnants of all of man's greed and um, every, all of his entertainment, everything he squandered, all of those things that jumped down a well to find, whether it was entertainment or money or sex, all of those things that we sometimes can tend to drown ourselves in to not live our lives. And he just felt that to me, for me, I could hear the remnants of that echoing in the buildings that the scenes in LA or, or in Las Vegas are really haunting to me. They're really scary. It is not a comforting place. Um, when you see that first iconic boom and he's walking in the, and he does, he doesn't, I don't feel like he was safe. It doesn't feel safe. Even though no one lives there per se, I'm sure there are people obviously Deckard wise, there are probably other people. Um, it's not this, it just feels, it feels abandoned, but it also feels dangerous. Well, it feels like and the ghosts again, are very much there with him, right? Yes, 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 for sure, for sure. And it's funny, uh, there's a, one scene, which I don't know if it was intentional, but if everyone, if anyone is familiar with the Southern Oracle in The NeverEnding Story, there are two um, statues, um, what's the term? Um, what kind of statues are they? They're Egyptian... Sphinxes? Sphinxes. So in the never-ending story, there's two sphinxes that stand right looking at each other. They're a big, this, essentially this woman with cat paws and a cat body, very large breasts, a woman's face. And in 2049, you have that almost identical scene where he's walking in between two women with very large breasts facing each other. They're sort of identical characters. They're not sphinxes, but it seemed like a homage to the never-ending story. But again, those statues are terrifying. They're terrifying. Um, the, to see the ex, how, how far the exploitation of, of women and sex went, that they, they built, they built um, monuments to it. But at the same time, it's interesting too, because it's also a throwback to Greek mythology and very sexualized culture. And that culture also was destroyed as well. Um, so it's interesting what's in play there. But I, I love, I do love the Las Vegas scenes. They're very haunting and iconic. And it's its own thing. It's its very own version of Blade Runner. It's a world that we're not familiar with. And it is completely authentic and designed by Sid Mead. And, and I think every bit as compelling, well, the production design was, right? I, I think every bit as compelling as uh, as anything in the original movie. I, I really feel like the, the Vegas sets in 2049 are, are on par with, with Los Angeles in 2019. Um, so we should probably wrap. Uh, but I, I do, sure. I do want to say again, like pick up this freaking book. If, for one thing, you might need two people to do it because it's very heavy. But if, it's it's, just, it's an amazing tome. That uh, I mean, if 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 you're listening to this show, like just buy the book. Like, there's no reason that you should. That this is made for us. It's made for people who. Yeah, it's like forty bucks on Amazon. It's like forty bucks. Like, much. save up for it. Ask for it for a holiday. It is like. It was made for us. It is made for people who have been listening to an hour and a half or whatever it is of this episode so far. Like this is just, it's just extraordinary. And it's just a great reminder of what went into this film. And again, there's one coming out for Dune that Tanya LaPointe is also writing, which is available for pre-order. Tanya LaHane. <laughs> Tanya LaHane. <laughs> uh, so I, I am 100% going to be pre-ordering that tonight uh, after we hang up. And um yeah, I, we will be back with another episode on the production design. So moving forward a little bit along our series in 2049 and exploring what some of the stuff actually 
came into the film as and what was what you actually see when you watch the movie and we're going to have some guests coming on very soon and uh this continues and dan was uh planning on being here tonight and of course being dan he did a ton of incredible research for this but uh at the last minute a co-worker called out and because of our schedules we had to go ahead without him but he wishes everybody well and wishes that he could be here tonight and he will i'm sure make up for it with a lot of great points um next time he's on for sure and uh, before we leave first of all thanks for listening second of all there's this program that we have that we're involved in called patreon and you can sign up to patreon two dollars a month you get this show, you also get Framerate, which is our film review show. You also get access to another show that we do for Perfect Organism called Shit Show. We do those every once in a while. $2 a month, you get a whole nother podcast for for that price. And we have a lot of patrons already. Uh, all the money that you give us goes back into uh, upkeeping this podcast and Perfect Organism, the, the Alien Saga podcast. They're kind of sister shows and ev- everything that we do in the future. So if you want to, if you want to support us, go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thanks everybody. Thanks guys. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladewaterpodcast.com forward slash support.